You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual Remember this asshole? My culture is a very dominant culture. And it's imposing and it's causing problems. If you don't do something about it, you're going to have taco trucks every corner. That's Marco Guterres, who warned us in 2016 that if Hillary Clinton won the presidential election, we would have taco trucks on every corner. Oh, the horror. Guterres was the founder of a group called Latinos for Trump. Founded in 2015, you know, shortly after Trump called all Mexicans rapists. I don't know if the organization and the grift is still active today, and I don't care to check. All I know is that Guterres hasn't parked his ass on my TV in a while, and I am fine with that. But there's always more like him out there. There's always your Diamonds and Silks, your Candace Owenses, your Caitlyn Jenners, and your Milo Yiannopoli. There's always room in the Republican Party and a slot on Fox News for useful minority idiots for people willing to back the party that wants to prevent people like them from voting or breathing or serving in the military or getting married or getting citizenship. Clinton, of course, didn't win the 2016 election, and we don't have taco trucks on every corner today, which is a shame. Wouldn't it be nice right now particularly to have a taco truck on the corner? Staffed, of course, by members of one family who are all quarantining together and everyone is using phone apps to pay that family for making tacos for your family so everyone's safe. Anyway, maybe you forgot that asshole Guterres. Like Milo Yiannopoulos and Deanna Durbin, Guterres seems to have disappeared, faded from public consciousness. Unlike Ted Cruz. That asshole is still in the Senate, but he did pull his tongue out of Donald Trump's asshole just long enough to rally the troops before the Texas State Republican Convention a couple of weeks ago. They're worried Republicans are down there in Texas because the state is trending blue in a big way. And Cruz, who wants your kids to go back to school so that the man who called his wife ugly and accused his dad of killing JFK can get reelected, well, he didn't want to go to the State Republican Convention himself. Too risky for him. School, not too risky for your kids. But he did send a videotape message to the GOP faithful ahead of the convention there. Texas is the single biggest target for the left in 2020, politically speaking. The 38 electoral votes at stake. There's a U.S. Senate seat at stake. And Texas is the key to national domination for years to come. If the Democrats win Texas, it's all over. Oh, what a shame if you can't see me, but I'm gesturing wildly right now. What a shame if all this was all over. What a shame if the pandemic was over, if Trump's corruption was over, if his shitty kids were over, if the gaslighting, the secret police, the Gestapo tactics, the attacks on a woman's right to choose, the attacks on immigrants, the attacks on trans people, the dismantling of the EPA, the insults directed at our allies, the cozying up to dictators, the dismemberment of journalists, and on and on and on. What a shame if all that was all over. Not to be outdone. That asshole Tucker Carlson said this on Fox News last week. If Democrats take both the Senate and the White House, and they could, you will not recognize America a year from now. You know what I wouldn't recognize? An America that was doing something about climate change. An America that was investing in green energy and not propping up coal companies. I wouldn't recognize that America, but I'd sure like to live in it. 
I also wouldn't recognize an America where the cops who murdered Breonna Taylor were sitting in a prison cell right next to the cops who murdered Elijah McClain. I wouldn't recognize an America where people in majority black districts didn't have to line up for six hours to vote while white people the next county over sailed in and out of their polling stations in minutes. I wouldn't recognize an America where the party that fails to win a majority of votes somehow manages to win the White House. Wouldn't recognize an America where I didn't have to hold my breath every time Ruth Bader Ginsburg catches a cold or cancer again. And at this point, I wouldn't recognize an America. I, I can barely remember an America where the president of the United States didn't sound like an insult comic. Some washed up Don Rickles, actually you'll probably have to Google him, where the President of the United States didn't sound like some washed up Don Rickles working what's left of the vaudeville circuit. And you're probably going to have to Google that too. Like Guterres in 2016, Cruz and Carlson are on my TV making a pretty good argument for voting against Donald Trump. There they are threatening us with a good time, a better time, progress. Because who doesn't want this to all be over? And the America we've got now, the one we all recognize at this moment... That America needs a fucking makeover. All right, coming up on today's show, tons of your cues, lots of my aids, and joining us on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, Chelsea, one half of a binational couple separated by travel bans, is here to talk about the Love Is Not Tourism campaign. All that coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I'm calling with a sex success story. So this year, my wife and I had our 10-year dating anniversary on one of the nights that the Hump Film Festival was streaming, so we thought we'd get a cabin, slip into the hot tub, and watch Hump together. Well, as it turns out, the internet was no good there, and furthermore, the cell signal was no good there, so we couldn't very well uh, tether our phone to stream it. I was ready to throw in the towel, but my wife said no that we should instead drive to the closest cell tower and watch Hump from our car. Well, we did that, and it was great. The closest cell tower was overlooking a beach, and it worked great in the car. And after watching Hump, um, well, we just decided to get busy in the back seat. After several minutes of that, we defogged our car and drove back to the cabin, where I proceeded to strap her down, and we did our business, and eventually I pull out and come on her pussy, and she tells me before I clean it up, no, you eat my pussy the way you found it, which I proceeded to do, and it was great. Thank you for sharing and not sparing us any details, and I hope you filmed that it would be super meta for someone to film for Hump the sex they had after watching Hump. If you have a quarantine or sex success story you would like to share and for us to possibly play at the top of next week's Lovecast, give us a buzz, 206-302-2064, and share your sex success story. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tax aviatrice youth. Me and my partner have been together for almost 14 years, uh, two very sweet kids along the way. <laughs> And uh, I've known that he is positive for genital herpes ever since I've met him. And somehow we've managed to stay safe and I wasn't infected all those years. 
Unfortunately, last month, something happened. My husband got a bit negligent and uh, missed his prophylactics and we didn't use a condom and I got infected. It was a very, very... Uh, tough disease. It was, uh, I had a fever and meningitis and the pain was really excruciating, but I'm over it now. It's been a month and now I find myself feeling a tad bit like a time bomb, uh, not knowing if and when the next episode is going to affect me. I've been looking through the medical literature to understand what I'm up against. I'm 37 and I think that most people get infected at much younger ages. And I was wondering maybe you or one of your experts can provide some advice or some knowledge about how the disease develops if you get infected at uh, my uh, old age of uh, 37 and, you know, some uh, general, I don't know, thoughts about the whole not knowing when and how it's going to come next and feeling like that ticking time bomb. I'm so sorry that this happened to you. I'm sorry that your husband neglected to take his meds, probably valacyclovir, which not only makes it less likely for someone who has herpes to transmit the virus to a partner, but also makes outbreaks less severe. And in some instances, in many people's experience, prevents them from having outbreaks at all. And that can lead someone to think, well, this isn't a problem in my life anymore. Unfortunately, and not to make any excuses for your husband's negligence here, sometimes people take these meds for years and years and years, and they've gone so long without having an outbreak that they think somehow that they don't need the meds anymore. They forget to take the meds because it's not a pressing problem in their life anymore. They're not aware of it and afraid of it as they were aware and afraid of it after their very first outbreak or outbreaks or if they had herpes before these meds came along, uh, which is, again, not to excuse your husband's negligence here, just to put it in some sort of context. He's not the only person with herpes who was compliant with the meds and on the meds for a long time who then forgot to take the meds because – Herpes didn't seem like such a problem for them anymore. Herpes wasn't popping up to remind them to take the meds. You should get on the meds immediately. The sooner you get on the meds and the longer you go without having another outbreak, as intense as your first outbreak, or not having another outbreak at all, which many people don't once they're on the meds, the less sort of time bomby your genitals will feel, the less estranged you'll feel from your genitals. Not going to help with the estrangement you might feel from your husband. You're going to have to find it in you to forgive him for this lapse. It is a lapse that others have committed and it's understandable how someone can forget to take those meds, stop seeing herpes as a problem in their life because of the meds and then forget about the meds. Ugh. Doesn't make what you went through any easier. And considering the severity of your outbreak, your fear is understandable. Please know the meds are really effective. Please know that many people who have an initial, even a severe initial outbreak, never have another one. Even many people who don't take the meds for whatever reason, and I think everybody who has herpes should take these medications, but many people have one outbreak and then never have another one. Some people do have regularly recurring outbreaks that can be severe which is why everyone should get on the meds. Everyone who has herpes, been exposed to herpes, had that one outbreak, 
needs to go to their doctor, talk about valocyclovir. There's a couple other medications that are also approved now for herpes. Uh, if you can't tolerate valocyclovir, and I would encourage you to, to do that. And it's something proactive that you can do personally to protect yourself from future outbreaks at all or of the severity of that first outbreak. And I think taking that step, being proactive in that way, will help you feel less like you're sitting on a time bomb. My heart goes out to you. What you went through is terrible. But in most people's lives, over the course of their lives, herpes, which is essentially a, a skin condition that can be painful, but in many instances is not, doesn't loom as large in, in the lives of many people with herpes because they have that one outbreak and they never have another one or they never have one as severe again, particularly if they're on the medications. Lots of people out there have been exposed to herpes, have herpes, and don't know they have herpes, which just points to how insignificant in many people's lives herpes infection can be. Because your infection and your initial outbreak, which was severe and painful, is mixed together with this lapse and sort of judgment and this evidence of inconsideration on your husband's part folds your infection together with a kind of emotional betrayal that you're really going to need to work on and unpack in your relationship and move past, hopefully together with your husband, who has hopefully apologized to you profusely. Hey, Don, Brian here, early 40s from Northern Ireland. So I've got a wee question about mental health and relationships. I myself have had my fair share of trauma and mental health issues over the years from the, the as far back as I can remember. And, you know, normally they have raised their ugly heads during relationships and mostly being the end of the relationships because it's difficult for me to, uh, you know, talk about depression, talk about my anxieties, talk about my my past, I am getting a whole lot better at it these days, uh, but it's still difficult. And sometimes these can arise and uh, there can be miscommunication, which can cause a, a detriment to the, to the relationship. So so something that I've started implementing is uh, POMs, which is a personal operating manual. It's a brief questionnaire that I, that I put together that when I get to the second date with, with somebody uh, and the sparks are beginning to fly, I can ask, you know, hey, do you mind if I show you my, my POM? And uh, these questions, you know, it talks about my mental health issues, my my coping mechanisms, my, uh, again, sexually, my turn-ons, my turn-offs, uh, what I'm into, what do, what do I want out of the relationship, things like that. And it's very just a nice little one-pager. And I also ask, you know, if they can return the favor and give me theirs. And it helps us, you know, make a more informed decision. Is this person worth moving forward with can i handle these troubles and and really helps with the the honesty and mostly it has worked in my favor in our favor i'll say and it, it sort of helps us accelerate from the second date i suppose to the tenth date you know we get all the little bits and pieces out of the way of getting to know each other and you know it still leaves a lot deeper conversations and and it just helps us move so so I was just wondering you know if you've heard of this or if other people implement it uh, anyone that I have implemented with has never heard of it, but they've been very happy to to you know to look at my personal operating manual and you know give me theirs. It also works in professional situations and friendship as well uh, obviously, I leave out the sexual side on the professional stuff, but anyway, love the show, and I'd love to hear your thoughts. Happy days. If it's worked for you, then who am I to 
question it. I am trying to project myself into the experience of being on just a second date with someone and them sliding a personal operating manual or their relationship curriculum vitae across the table for me to read. And I think that might be okay. But I wonder if in the moment I might find that a little odd. And sometimes odd is good. Sometimes we react to odd things as if by definition they're bad because they're uncommon. You know, something odd doesn't doesn't have to be the pejorative definition of odd. It can just be strange or not something you've encountered very often. And sometimes we have to step back and say, I am reacting negatively to something that's odd because it's odd. It's unfamiliar, not on its own merits. And it might actually be very beneficial to have this kind of personal operating manual presented to me from someone that I'm considering dating. The inclusion of your turn-ons and desires sexually, I think most Vanilla muggles might find that off-putting. In Kinkland, there are kink questionnaires that a lot of people fill out that they post on their profiles on FetLife or Recon or other kink dating sites so that the, anybody who approaches them knows in advance everything that they're interested in. And, you know, it ranks often desires and interests so that if, you know, you're very much into flogging, that's at the top with a higher percentage of interest. And if you're mildly into, I don't know, some other kink, drinking piss or whatever, that might be much further down on the list, much less intense interest, but something that also turns you on. And it's normative in kink spaces to share in that way. It is not normative. It is odd to share that kind of list in a vanilla muggle dating space. So I'm not opposed. If it's worked for you and your partners have been surprised but delighted to receive your personal operating manual and perhaps inspired to create POMs of their own and present them to other people that they're dating. Maybe it'll catch on. Maybe in a decade's time, POMs will be something that everyone brings to a second date. But I have my doubts. That said, a lot of people who have profiles on sites like OkCupid go into great detail about their emotional life, their relationship histories, their interests, perhaps even their sexual desires, the more sort of explicit or sex positive ones. And so in a sense, maybe your POM is just a printed out and uh, stapled version of what a lot of people are already doing in their online dating profiles. And perhaps one of the reasons this strikes me as odder than it might strike other people, younger people, is that my romantic life didn't involve the internet to the extent that other people's romantic lives and dating lives have involved the internet. I met my long-term partner in a bar, the old-fashioned way. We started by making out drunk. We didn't start by DMing each other. Anyway, good luck. And if it works for you, then I endorse it. I'm not sure it'll work for everybody. Hello, Dan and the tech savvy at-risk youth. I would love some advice on how to handle a situation I'm in with my sister and her daughter. My 14-year-old niece and I have a very close relationship in which she regularly shares with me her very normal teenage frustrations with and feelings of alienation from my sister, um, and especially because my niece also struggles with social anxiety and difficulty trusting others. I've made a huge effort to be available to her as an adult she can trust and talk openly with in a way she's not currently willing to do with my sister. Um, my sister has recently divorced my niece's father and is a little too absorbed in her own worries and stresses right now to be a very good listener these days. 
My sister supports the special relationship I have with my niece because she trusts me and knows I would protect my niece with my life and wants her daughter to feel supported. But I can tell it wounds my sister to feel like an outsider with her own child. And I know my sister would absolutely expect me to share any information she might need as a parent to do her job of being responsible for my niece's physical and emotional health while she's still a minor. So about a month ago, my niece came out to me as a lesbian, and since then, her trust in and attachment to me seems to have grown even stronger. I've encouraged her to come out to my sister as well, as I know my sister will ultimately accept and love my niece for whoever she is, even if her initial reaction might not be very graceful. But my niece doesn't yet feel emotionally safe coming out to her mom. And in the meantime, she's been asked out by a girl two years older than she is and would like to go on a date by pretending to her mom that she will just be hanging out with a friend. She's also asked if I could potentially give her a ride to and from that date. So I'm starting to feel uncomfortable that in my effort not to betray my niece by outing her to her mother, I'm betraying my sister by keeping information from her about her minor daughter dating someone two years older than she is. Where is the line between what secrets it is and isn't appropriate for an aunt to keep under these circumstances? 16-year-olds date 14-year-olds all the time. A lot of people are uncomfortable. Something about that number, 14, that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable, actually, to think about 14-year-olds dating. But we all were 14-year-olds once. We were all in high school. A lot of us in high school as freshmen or sophomores dated other people in high school who were juniors or seniors who were – 16, 17 years old. And it's a normal part of adolescent human development to have those early relationships. A lot of queer people, a lot of lesbians and gay boys are denied those relationships because often other people who are our age, who might be appropriate, you know, first boyfriends or girlfriends aren't out yet. And that's why you see, and Peggy Orenstein wrote about this at great length in her book, Boys and Sex. When it comes to young gay boys, a lot of them dating older men, a lot of teenage boys getting on dating apps, lying about their age to get on dating apps, and then dating guys who are in their 20s, sometimes even older than their 20s, because you know if your choice is dating no one, unlike your peers who are all dating and you know making out at parties, or dating somebody that it probably wouldn't be appropriate for you to date, young people will often... And who can blame them? Pick inappropriate person to date over nobody ever to date. In your niece's case, 14, just came out to you, to her aunt as a lesbian. A 16-year-old is someone appropriate perhaps for her to date, depending on who that 16-year-old is. I hope you've had conversations with your niece and it's good for her, your niece that she has a, a trusted adult in her life that she can open up to about you know, this person that she's interested in, who's interested in her, that she'd like to go on a date with so that if there are any red flags that your niece at 14 can't identify, you, her aunt, are there to help point them out to her. That's why it's really important for young queer kids to be able to be out. When I was a closeted gay kid but sleeping with guys, I couldn't open up to my mom about what these guys were asking me to do or what these guys were like. Whereas my sister, when she began dating at roughly the same age, could talk to my mom about these things. My mom could say, well, that's something only an asshole would ask you to do. You know, my sister, when she was 15, could go to my mother and say, my boyfriend says, if you love me, we wouldn't have to wear condoms. And my mother could tell her that her boyfriend is a fucking asshole and she needs to break up with him and open my sister's eyes, right? When I was 
of a similar age and guys were saying, if you loved me, you wouldn't ask me to, or you would let me, I couldn't open up to anybody because I was closeted. I had no trusted adults in my life to turn to. So it's really great that you are the trusted adult in your niece's life that she can turn to. And I would hope that your sister is capable of recognizing that, that it is better for her daughter to have a trusted adult in her life that she can confide in and that she can trust, including trust that adult not to run to mom and tell her everything. There are things that your niece isn't ready to tell mom and your mom has to respect that. And I think maybe you have a conversation with your sister where you say, you know, she's obviously leaning on me and confiding in me in a way that she's not confiding in you right now. Let's not make a big, you know, issue of it. Let's not, you know, focus rage or anger on that because that will probably screw up your relationship with your daughter going forward. Eventually she will open up to you again. She's a teenager. She's an adolescent. She wants to not be parented by her parent, but I am there to provide a little adult direction, a little bank shot parenting. And isn't that better than her having no one in her life right now that she feels she can open up to? You know, when we were young, my one of the smart things my parents did was identify a few adults in our lives that we, when we were teenagers, my siblings and I, we could go to and ask questions and, and confide in. Of course, it didn't work for me because I couldn't tell anyone I was gay at that time. But we could go to it and confide in. And part of the deal with, you know, Aunt Peggy was if we asked Aunt Peggy a question, she wouldn't go and tell our parents. My parents told her that we were allowed to ask them questions and they were not supposed to report back to HQ about what we may have asked about, which made Peggy a safe person to go to. And one of the things that made Peggy safe to go to was that she wasn't in our lives all the time, that we could ask her an embarrassing question, ask her about somebody we were dating, and then we didn't have to make eye contact with her every night at dinner and every morning at breakfast. That, you know, if we were embarrassed about the question, we could like ask Aunt Peggy and then run away and then go back to Peggy if we needed to later after the embarrassment and shame wore off, you're playing that role. You're Aunt Peggy for your niece. And that's great. And that's important. And I would hope your sister could put aside the wounded feeling of not being her daughter's confident at this stage of her daughter's life and take comfort in the fact that her daughter does have that trusted adult in her life. And it's someone that your sister trusts you, her sister. And I think you should drive your niece to this date. Hopefully you're not transporting your niece across state lines to go on this date, but you can impose as the responsible, trusted adult, you can impose conditions on your niece about this date, recognizing that there's sometimes a big difference between 14 and 16, demanding information about this 16-year-old, questioning your niece about who this person is, how they met, whether this person, assuming they met online, as many young people do, is who she says she is. And then, you know, you'll drive her to a date. It, the date has to be in public, can't be in private, and you want to know exactly where she is and when she's there. And if she's relying on you to get her to this date and take her home from this date, well, then that whole date can take place in a Denny's. Well, I guess not in a Denny's. We're not going to restaurants right now, but can take place somewhere public. If there's an outdoor restaurant that's serving, maybe it can be there and you can hover nearby and you can impose, you know, a restriction like you're never out of my sight on this date. I'll hang way the fuck back, but you're never out of my sight. So that if after the fact your sister finds out and blows up, you can roll out to her the precautions that you 
took acting in loco parentis on your sister's behalf. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the Texas Savvy Outrisk Youth. I am a pansexual married woman living in the Southeast. I have been talking to my husband for almost the last decade about potentially trying to pursue an open marriage. It's been an on and off conversation the whole time. It's definitely been me wanting to have the conversation. Sometimes in the past, he's somewhat avoided it. But we finally have kind of gotten to a point where we are really talking about it. But yesterday, he told me after a pause of about four weeks that he's thought about it and that he doesn't feel that he will ever feel loved in a relationship where he would ever have to share me emotionally. And that if I want to stay with him, then having other like a polyamorous arrangement would never be on the table not even with him as a primary partner and others as secondary. And I feel like that is what I need in order to feel sexy and alive. And I recognize that we should have had the monogamy conversation before we got married, but I got married to him when I was a week after I turned 25. And to be honest, I did have concerns about monogamy then, but We were both raised in the South, and I didn't think that anybody did anything different And that if I wanted a partner, that was what I had to do. And and I should have been braver, and I should have said that I had doubts at the time, but but I went through with it anyway. Um, And part of me feels really guilty about that, and part of me also sees my younger self not, I don't know, I just, I feel really torn up about the whole thing. I don't know if there's a way to salvage this everything else about our marriage is good. I mean, he's definitely the like 0.65 or seven that you definitely round up to one. I mean, nothing's perfect, but you know, it won't be with any person that I really saw my future with him. But I just don't know. I, I have a history of cheating and he knows about some of it. And I just don't know if I'm capable of long-term monogamy, even if there were some one-night stands in there. I I just don't know if that's enough for me, and I feel horrible about it. You know, your call brought up some trauma for me, just because I'm so often accused of being the enemy. Not not really. I'm being joking. Perhaps I shouldn't (laughs) joke about trauma. But, you know, a lot of people have, have accused me of being opposed to monogamy, the enemy of monogamy, that I don't want anybody to be monogamous because I talk so much about open relationships or polyamorous relationships Mm -hmm. and I'm not opposed to monogamy. And there are some people who are monogamous, can be monogamous, or even if being monogamous is a bit of a struggle, monogamy makes them happier. Open relationships don't work for them. The reason I talk about open Mm -hmm. relationships and polyamory is because it would be better for monogamous people if they didn't wind up in committed monogamous relationships with people who are bad at it or can't do it or or it really doesn't make them happy. But the culture just pressures people to make monogamous commitments they may not be able to keep. Yeah, and I'm 100% on board with you there. And one of the ways the culture pressures people into making those commitments is by denying them any information or examples of successful open or poly relationships. And so mm-hmm. people think if I, you know, if I want a relationship, it has to be monogamous because all good and loving and decent relationships are monogamous. And that's what a lot of people who, you know, believe very rigidly that monogamy is the only relationship model that's valid are threatened by when there's any sort of conversation or acknowledgement, conversation about acknowledgement mm-hmm. of open 
or poly. And it's this makes me a friend to the monogamous, not the enemy of people who mm-hmm. want monogamy, because what I'm trying to create is a world where people who can't do it or shouldn't do it don't try. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You tried. Yeah. And here you are. You've mm-hmm. made a monogamous commitment that perhaps if you'd been a little bit older when you married, you would have known better than to marry, than to make mm-hmm. a monogamous commitment. You said you had a history of cheating before the, you know, the mm-hmm. relationship that you're in now. And a lot of people, you know, they fail at monogamy and they think they're failures. And what you need to do, the trick that, you know, the, the pivot that a lot of people can't do or need to do is not that I'm failing at monogamy. Monogamy is failing me. Monogamy doesn't work for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so rather than base a relationship on this thing that I've already proven to myself I'm not interested in or capable of doing, I'm going to go create a different kind of relationship for myself. Mm-hmm. The situation you're in is how do you create that different kind of relationship when you're in a relationship that's you know based in monogamy and your partner doesn't want to renegotiate terms, revise, reconceive the relationship? What do you do? Right. And that's, you know, that's the impasse. Basically, you're both looking at each other saying, someone's going to have to pay the price of admission and it's not going to be me, which is just another way of saying there's an irreconcilable difference here. Right. And I'm I'm just, I guess, in the midst of contemplating, you know, is this something that I feel like I could try to do? Um, because it's an enormous price to pay, right? Um Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the person that I've built my whole life with so far for a dozen years. I'm deeply in love with, <laughs> and I don't, I don't want another primary partner, but not having freedom feels like giving up a part of myself that's vital to my life force. And I don't know, I don't know what to do with that yet. I don't know how to have that conversation in a way that doesn't shut him down because I'm also wondering if I'm just asking him to be somebody he's not too, because I don't think it's about societal bias for him. He's he said that he's maybe open to like outside just sex, but it's hard to find in a way that um at least where we live doesn't feel uh ego driven, if that makes any sense. He feels like in order to feel trust and love that he needs me to be the only emotional relationship and and for me not to have outside emotional relationships, but for me the emotional and the sexual are just absolutely intertwined and I don't see random one night stands once in a while as being really what I'm even looking for. Mm -hmm. And as a woman, there's more risk in her, you know, women are murdered by their boyfriends and husbands every day. So Mm -hmm. getting to know someone and having an emotional bond isn't absolute protection, but there's more Mm -hmm. risk for women in sort of an anonymous one night stand. A lot of women don't feel safe Mm -hmm. unless there's some sort of connection because men are testosterone-soaked dick monsters and dangerous. And by no means am I saying all women are this way, but I feel more turned on when I know the person and when I can have an intelligent conversation with them. Mm -hmm. And I enjoy, just like Esther Perel says, like exploring who I become in those moments of like knowing somebody else and knowing myself differently. Wow, so it's even more complicated a situation than I realized from your call because your husband is essentially saying, here's the carve-out, here's the accommodation I could make. Which if, mm-hmm. there, if there was no emotional connection, if it was just sex, mm-hmm. I could either ignore it. Maybe it would be a DADT arrangement where he wouldn't even know about it. 
that so long as you weren't, you know, forging emotional bonds with other people, as long as that sort of romantic and emotional intimacy was his alone, even if you weren't physically his alone, he could Mm -hmm. get there. He could do that. Definite maybe. Yeah. It's just a matter of finding the right scenario and um, the part of the country that we live in, which may or may not be a permanent thing for us is um, it's culturally tricky, not impossible. There are people doing it, but it's Mm -hmm. tricky to find, you know, by people doing it, do you mean like swingers or swingers parties or, or polyamorous people or just whatever. I mean, we're Mm -hmm. in the Southeast, so it's, you know, it's conservative still, even though things are changing everywhere, but go to an organized um, swingers event and you know what you meet Republicans. Yeah, I wouldn't doubt it. Um, I think, (laughs) you know, a lot of young people or, or, or married people, partnered people, uh, who are liberal or Democrats who have open relationships seem less invested in like structured or hierarchical open relationships. You know, don't get involved in organized swinging. The people who seem mm-hmm. to be drawn to organized swinging, which is more structured, uh, mm-hmm. in my experience, and I you know did a lot of writing about this many years ago. Maybe it's changed. Were conservatives that that something about organized swinging allowed them to you know have these kinds of sexual adventures, but in a limited and controlled, circumscribed and conservative manner. Uh, whereas mm-hmm. you know other people who are sort of I guess tacked more toward relationship anarchy, we're less likely to be conservative, more likely to be Democrats, even mm-hmm. if they're in relationships. You know, if there's an irreconcilable difference, then, you know, and neither of you are willing to compromise, then you just have to go, right? You have to end it even if it breaks your heart, you know, even if you don't hate the person. Uh, if this sort of freedom is something you can't live without and he can't grant you. Mm-hmm. But that said, you know, sometimes that allowance, that accommodation where there can be sex without intimacy isn't the final answer, right? Mm. There's a lot of people out Mm. there who are polyamorous, who have emotional connections with their secondary or tertiary or occasional sex partners. They have relationships who at first, when they first opened their relationship Mm -hmm. with their primary partner, that wasn't allowed. And it was only as both people grew more comfortable, particularly the person who was reluctant to open the relationship in the first place, grew more comfortable with what it meant to be in an open relationship. After they saw that you could have sex with somebody else and not disappear on them or neglect them mm-hmm. or love them any less, mm-hmm. that they grew more comfortable with the idea of their partner seeing somebody yeah. more than once or began to see the benefit in their partner, perhaps seeing somebody more than once. Cause if mm-hmm. you know, you're go off and have sex with somebody else and that person isn't trying to steal you away, well, that's a safe person perhaps for you to have sex with again, perhaps a better mm-hmm. person for you to have sex with again than, you know, somebody who might come along that you don't know what their motives are. They might tell you that they're content just to have sex that one time, but then pursue you in a way that that person, the other person didn't. Cause they respected mm-hmm. your relationship. Mm-hmm. So I guess my question would be like, how transparent should I be about that up front? Then, like, if if I'm saying, okay, I'm willing to start there, is it unethical for me not to say, but I'm interested in more after that? Well, he knows you're interested in trust. more. Haven't you already put that on the table that you would like? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you're willing to settle for this, and you hope someday that there could be, as he gets more comfortable, it could be. You could, you know, revise the rules again, just as you're revising the rules Mm. now Mm. that, you know, he has this ideal that he's letting go of, which is monogamy. 
And you have this mm-hmm. ideal, which is polyamory, that you're willing to let go of, and you're landing on this compromise, mm-hmm. which is sex without intimacy. Isn't what you mm-hmm. want, ultimately, or what you would prefer. It's not what he would want, ultimately, or what he would prefer. But you may grow and change. You may find that the reality of having sex with other people is so destabilizing that it's not worth it. And mm-hmm. monogamous back up yourself or want to remain monogamous functionally, even if your heart and your twat isn't monogamous, right? Your fantasies aren't monogamous. Or he may find that as he grows more comfortable with sex with other people or even has sex with other people himself, he sees the benefit in perhaps there being a relationship, not the mm-hmm. relationship. You know, He is mm-hmm. your the relationship. That is your singular relationship. Mm-hmm. But relationships with others, making the sex with others mm-hmm. safer. But that could take time. But I think you, at the very least, you have to take him up on this offer. Yeah, I guess. Well, and the question is now with COVID, like, what? <laughs> where does that yeah. even leave us? Yeah, now, I'll take him up on this offer after there's a vaccine. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess that's a fair place to start. And then. And what are his fantasies? Like, what's your sex life um, like? I mean, it's like good. It's. It, it's never been like mind-blowingly stellar, but it's always felt like he is somebody that I trust and that's incredibly loyal to me. And like, I know his fantasies are kind of typical male in terms of um, he would like to have sex with no string, strings attached with like people he doesn't necessarily even know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, to be honest, he hasn't like, well, he has asked me about my fantasies, but I've been more reticent about like, the fact that my fantasies are mostly about people that I actually know in my actual real life, because that could definitely seem threatening to him. Um, Mm -hmm. Because that's sort of where I find myself to be at least predominantly um, in my mind (laughs) is about like people that I know through academia, people that I know through um, my other professional obligations, people that I know through friendship groups, like, and you know, when he, when we're like in bed and he's like, what do you fantasize about? I don't want to be like, well, so-and-so. Um, well, you can see, even, then, even if you were single, like fucking coworkers, fucking colleagues, fucking friends, uh, can create chaos, right? But yeah, there, there are risks yeah. inherent there, even if you were a free agent. Yeah, but I mean, that doesn't mean it's impossible to navigate. No, Maybe not every single one of them. It's but. certainly not impossible to navigate. But your husband's ideas about outside partners makes it a little safer for him emotionally, but perhaps, you know, if you could actually have a conversation with him about this and unpack it in detail, that he may be wanting these things to be neat, clean and uncomplicated. And he sees Mm -hmm. no strings attached, you know, anonymous X part you're never going to see again as uncomplicated. And Mm -hmm. if you can convince him that actually, particularly for you as a woman, that NSA, no strings attached, anonymous X partner is much more complicated. Mm-hmm. And potentially dangerous. I mean, I think I think he knows that. I mean, I've said like you know, for women, a lot of times we feel safer with people that we know or have some context with. And he was like, "Yeah, I know that." So, uh. hmm. And you don't want to leave him. You don't want to get a divorce. I don't want to. Okay. I don't know if I don't know if I'm going to land on having to, mm-hmm. but I don't want to. God, yeah, I don't know what to tell you. Like the compromise is, you know, inherently what you don't want, which is you can do that. You can do it in this way that doesn't work for you and doesn't turn you on. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Or 
you can, you know, take his permission to have NSA sex and have NS, what you consider NSA sex with people that aren't strangers to you and mm-hmm. violate the spirit, if not the letter of the law. And if then that comes out, then that could blow your marriage up. You could mm-hmm. never feel like he trusts you ever again. Right. Uh, it's really an impossible problem that only a time machine can solve for you guys to have this conversation before the wedding or for you to not marry him and find somebody, you know, conceive of yourself as a non-monogamous person and a good non-monogamous right. person who finds somebody else who isn't interested in monogamy that you're on the same page with sexually, that you're sexually compatible with on this issue, but you married somebody that you're not sexually compatible with because the culture put a zap on your head and convinced you that you had to be with somebody. You had to be monogamous to be a good person, a monogamous to be married yeah, I mean, when I was like 23, 24, I just thought that if I was going to have a partner, that was the only way to have a partner, honestly. And, it, and it's not. And that is why yeah. we talk about this shit now. So that people right, don't and I didn't find your show until I was 26 and already married. And so. people don't end up in sad situations like this where they're really in conflict about something so fundamental. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and why monogamy needs to be an opt-in conversation even for straight people, just like it's always been yeah. for gay couples. It's always been yeah. opt-in, should we do this this way or not? And for straight people, it's a default setting, and it just sets a lot of relationships up for, if not failure, certainly years of conflict down the road. And that's where you are right now, mm-hmm. the years of conflict stage. Right. Who knows? Maybe right. your husband can go become PUD, poly under duress, and then become a happily poly person, formerly PUD. But you're going to mm-hmm. have to risk your marriage if that's where you want to go, if that's where you want to get mm-hmm. ultimately you have to put it all on the line. You have to issue ultimatums. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's, that's pretty much like where I know I'm at and I appreciate the affirmation of that. It's just a very um, difficult place to be. And I guess I've been carrying it at the back of my mind since I called you and, and just trying to kind of forge ahead with my day to day life because there's not really a solution immediately. <laughs> well, give us a call back and let us know how it went. And good luck. And I'm really sorry that your that, that you stumbled into this circumstance and you know, a culture of monogamy is the only model for a committed, particularly opposite sex relationship set you up like this. Makes me angry. Yeah. I mean it, and I do feel really bad because that was the one thing that I was not sure about when we did our files was the monogamy part, but I just didn't see another way. Um so I do feel really bad too. That sex and sexual fulfillment is important. There's probably some people out there listening who are thinking, why can't she just for the sake of the relationship be monogamous? Well, because some people aren't and can't be. And the more of those people who don't make monogamous commitments, the better for the monogamous and the people who can do it and want it. Yeah. Good luck. Thank you so much. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at risk youth. I was looking at some photos. Um, I was uploading them to my computer. I found some old photos of me and an ex from about, we broke up like two and a half years ago, but we've been friends ever since. Yeah, I would definitely keep in touch, stuff like that. And so I sent them to him and I was like, haha, look at these photos, so funny. And then in response, he was like, sent me this very long text about like how he perceived it as flirting, how he's in a committed relationship, all of that. And I, I pretty much have a boyfriend. I was not trying to flirt with him at all. Um, and I said as much and it was, got really awkward. And I asked my friend and she said that that definitely could be interpreted as flirting. Um, and I'm just not interested in him at all anymore. I just we wanted to 
show him some photos I thought were funny. But is that flirting? You say he has a new girlfriend and my worst case scenario disorder. That condition prompted me to imagine him sitting on the couch when these photos arrived and his girlfriend sitting beside him and seeing them arrive. You may not have been flirting, but they can't, neither of them, read your mind and know what your intent was. And you sending these photos of look at us together and the implication there is weren't those great times when we were together, dot, dot, dot. And it's not always the case when someone sends you a note to say, hey, remember old times that they are pining to get back together with you. But it's the case often enough that that's true that legitimately someone could interpret that as flirting, flirting adjacent, potential flirting subconscious flirting and feel threatened by it. And if his girlfriend, worst case scenario, disorder version was sitting next to him when these photos from you arrived, that long text back to you might not just have been about letting you know he's in a relationship now, but performing, shutting this down for his girlfriend so that, you know, if she was feeling insecure about him looking at those photos or receiving those photos from you, if she found you threatening in that moment, he may have sent that long text, not just to let you know to knock it off, but to mollify her. So whatever your intent was, he interpreted as possibly flirting. And there's no way for you to ever prove beyond a shadow of doubt to him that that wasn't the case or potentially the case. So now you know. Now you know not to send him these photos. I believe you. I believe that you're not flirting. You have a new partner. You're happy. You were just remembering old times and wanting to reach out to your ex. But there's no way for his girlfriend to know for sure that your intentions were pure. And there's really no way for him to know that either. But he's made it clear to you. He's established a boundary. Doesn't want to see these kinds of photos. Doesn't want you to, however much contact you're in with him now, doesn't want the contact to take this form photos of your good times together. So no more photos like that. Hey, Dan, I am calling because I have a, it's probably an extremely weird question. My partner and I, we spent the day today at the swimming pool and it was extremely hot, almost a hundred degrees, high humidity. We came home both a little grumpy and I was sitting in the living room when I remembered <laughs> that I have leftover ice cream in the freezer. And when I remembered that I had the leftover ice cream, I felt for just a moment sexually aroused. So I turned to my partner and I told her that I felt my, I felt my nubbin twitch. And she said that that was fine and that she could understand why the idea of something exciting would make me feel like physically aroused. But I am freaked out and I think that's wrong. I'm not interested at all in introducing ice cream into sex play. And I'm not sexually motivated by ice cream. I don't walk down a freezer aisle and want to slide my body against you know, gallons of ice cream, but I'm still freaking out. So is that okay? Is that normal? Do, do, do other people have like a physical response to something as benign as ice cream the way I did? Or do I have like an unlocked fetish deep inside me? Sometimes we 
are momentarily turned on for no reason at all. It's just completely random and there's no powerful erotic association. You're kink shaming yourself basically for what probably isn't a kink, just a coincidence. You mentioned ice cream. You had this twinge. It wasn't related to the ice cream at all. Just ice cream was the word that happened to be coming out of your mouth at the moment when your pussy, for some random reason, kicked into gear. And now you're worried that you have an ice cream kink. And even if you did, even if you were a goop fetishist and you liked pouring ice cream over your head or being covered in mucusy, slimy, cow milk ice cream during sex, that would be fine. There would be nothing wrong with that. I hope if you're a regular listener to this show that that would be something that you had internalized after even one or two episodes, one or two months, that whatever your kink is, it's not something you chose. But you would know if this was legitimately a kink. You would know that ice cream, if you thought of it again, if you walked down that freezer aisle – you would become aroused. It would be predictable and consistent. And obviously it's not. Obviously you're not turned on by the thought of the freezer aisle unless you've deeply suppressed this kink and there was this one moment where it burst forth and your pussy went twang. So no, stop this. Stop this. This was random. You're talking about ice cream. Your pussy was off in its own little world and some nerve, some synapse got plucked and your pussy went squish and you need to stop kink shaming yourself about it and stop worrying about it and you need to tell yourself that even if it were true even if this were some emerging rocky road kink of yours that would be fine too that would be interesting what a fun new area to explore and what a great reason to always keep ice cream in the freezer besides just the essential deliciousness of ice cream in the first place so this is not a problem this is not your kink. This was a coincidence. This is your pussy demanding that you stop talking about ice cream and pay attention to her instead. So, yeah, please stop wringing your hands and go get your girlfriend and wring your pussies instead. Hi, Dan. I met someone back in November in London and just have fallen just crazy, crazy, crazy in love. And... It's been so wonderful, but we, he's still there and I'm here on the East Coast and I don't know when we'll get to see each other again. He's supposed to come, but the visa situation is just insane and can't travel and I just, I'm just so sad. (laughs) And and it's just really hard to go through this with the uncertain, you know, with the uncertainty. And so, just I know there's so this is not a unique problem. There's so many people that are separated from the people that they love right now. But just I don't know, just some reassurance and and anything is good. Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Chelsea. She is a love is not tourism activist. So, uh, Chelsea, thank you very much for for jumping on the phone. And indeed, this is not a unique problem, is it? Yeah, it's not unique whatsoever. Um, There are thousands of couples separated because of this pandemic, just like this caller. 
because of these travel bans. And you are one of those people. You and your partner are currently separated by the travel bans. Yes, we are. Um, I'm here in the States and he's in Austria. How long have you and your uh, boyfriend been together? We've been together for a year and we were living together in the Pacific Northwest up until I think March 17th when all of the shutdowns went into effect. Really quickly, just tell me a little bit about your boyfriend and why you love him. Oh gosh. Well, he is an Austrian man who is handsome and kind and patient and bossy in the right ways. And those are, those are my favorite kind of Austrians, the ones who are bossy in the right ways. (laughs) Yeah, right? They really like to tell you what to do, and I really like it. (laughs) (laughs) And was it a shock to you when Europe announced that they were reopening to travelers, but the United States was banned along with Brazil and Russia, other countries that are ruled by incompetent kleptocrats? Were you counting Uh, on being able to get in? Was the plan for you to join him in Austria and then our lousy response to the pandemic prevented you from reuniting with your boyfriend? Yeah, we were, we had plans on meeting in Austria and, you know, seeing where things went from there. And when they released the information, we, we all knew like in the love is not tourism community, we knew that the EU was going to be releasing that. And Mm -hmm. there was no way that I thought that the United States was going to be included in that list of welcomed individuals. So love is not tourism. Um, We're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Define what this movement, this campaign is and where people who are separated from their partners because of the travel bans can find the love is not tourism campaign uh, and access the information or resources that are available to people in your circumstance, in your situation. Right. So love is not tourism. There are thousands of individuals who are separated from their loved ones due to the COVID uh, pandemic. We are, for the most part, unmarried couples. However, there are instances where children are being separated from parents and married partners are being separated uh, across borders. And anyone who is in this sort of situation can find more info on this on the Facebook, which is Love Is Not Tourism. And there's a hashtag that we've been trying to get to trend on Twitter, which is also Love Is Not Tourism. And from there on the Facebook, you can ask any question. We have people from all over the world who are doing their best to reunite with their loved ones. And you can find Discord communities, WhatsApp communities, and uh, get more information on this constantly evolving situation. And there has been some success. Denmark, the Czech Republic, they have made it possible for people who can prove that they're in committed long-term relationships to predate the beginning of this pandemic to enter the country despite the travel ban. Isn't that right? Yeah, Denmark was the first to do it, and they have an, a, a waiver that you sign. Uh, you and your partner both sign this waiver And it basically states that you are together and you will be greatly punished if you are lying on that. Um, And as you mentioned the Czech Republic, I think you need a joint bank statement to prove your partnership. Mm. But there there are many countries that are starting to allow it. Uh, It just depends on the country what the stipulation might be. So there's been movement in Denmark, progress in the Czech Republic and in Austria. What other countries are uh, being discussed or has there been some progress or movement on uh, for, for people who are separated from their loved ones right now? 
Yeah, thanks. Uh, so there is obviously Denmark, uh, Norway, Austria, the Netherlands, and I believe that it's starting on the 27th that they'll be allowing that. Uh, Sweden, if you intend to marry or have a cohabitation partnership. Finland from certain countries, the Czech Republic with that joint bank statement. Mm-hmm. And Switzerland, I believe that they're going to announce something by the end of the month. Uh, if they haven't already. Okay, so it's mostly a, a movement with focused on European countries at the moment. There are resources for those separated in other countries, but there is definitely an EU focus. And, and your partner is in Austria. Has Austria moved toward creating this kind of waiver exemption a la Denmark and the Czech Republic? Um, we have made... Great strides on Team Austria. We, through uh, speaking with members of parliament and embassies, we have been able to, as partners, enter Austria. However, there is a miscommunication as far with airlines as far as being able to get there. So people have, if that makes sense, people have the way people know that they can enter Austria if they can prove that they're in a long term committed romantic relationship and are showing up at mm-hmm. airports. I, I read some of the background uh, stuff that you sent me. People are showing up at airports with all of the proof and the Austrian government has okayed this and the airlines are denying them boarding. Yeah, it's an absolute mess. I have a flight in about two and a half weeks and I'm so scared of being that sad, heartbroken person just with all of my belongings waiting to go see my boyfriend and being turned down. How are you weathering this? Now, now, now the, the caller circumstance, her boyfriend is in London. As I understand it currently or understood it, it's such a, such an ever changing situation right now. Everything's so fluid, but as I understand it, it is still possible for Americans to enter the UK. Yes. Uh, you, I mean, I'm not an immigration lawyer, so please don't quote me on this. Uh, you are allowed to enter the UK as an American citizen so long as you quarantine for 14 days. And that means you have to have a place to go and you have to stay there. There are steep fines if you violate that quarantine. But the caller, and our and our, our hearts break for the caller. You can hear how upset she is. Um, yeah. But But she needs to know that if it's possible for her to go see him, that she can reunite with her partner now in a way that you can't absolutely she can go over to the uk and you know quarantine with her loved one for 14 days that doesn't sound so bad to me (laughs) it doesn't sound (laughs) so bad to me either are there any tips or pointers that you can give her for weathering this you've been separated from your partner since march um she's been separated i think a bit longer uh Mm -hmm. just emotionally what are your hacks? Well, what are you doing to, 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 to get through this time? Um, well, for the most part, I mean, it's been really hard. Uh, the day that my partner left was the same day that I was told I no longer had a job anymore. And uh, it felt like my heart had been ripped out. And so I totally can relate to what's going on with this caller. And I feel, I just feel that way every single day. And I guess I've, taken all of that heartache and pain and put it towards scouring the internet for ways that I can 
reunite with my partner. And beyond that, just, I guess, hanging out with family and trying to, to make the best of a crappy situation. And you have really been very active here. You have personally spoken to members of parliament in Austria to get the law changed, to get this policy changed so that you can reunite with your partner in Austria and other people who have partners in Austria can also reunite. Yeah, what a novel concept being able to, you know, have an open discourse with politicians. It's kind of refreshing. The Love is Not Tourism campaign is not the same as just end the travel bans. There are some efforts out there just to unilaterally force an end to the travel bans. And that's not what the Love is Tourism people are arguing. Or that's not what the Love is Not Tourism people are arguing for. That it, Correct. We are advocates for a 14-day quarantine. We are advocates for paying out of pocket for testing before entering countries. We want to do this the correct way because we don't want to have the, the things that we've worked for taken away from us. Right. And it's not about you want to get into party on the beaches of Corfu or you know go to the <laughs> nightclubs in <laughs> no. Berlin. You want to go yeah. to be reunited with your boyfriend and our will. And, you know, this is about living together. This isn't about, you know, tourism, seeing the sites, going to the museums, going to the nightclubs. It's about being with the person that you love. And that's the exemption that the love is not tourism activists are asking for and are willing to comply with whatever restrictions are, are placed on them by the governments of the countries that they want to go to, to be reunited with their lovers, to make the people who are in those countries where they are being responsible, much more responsible than we've been in the United States, is safe to keep them safe. Yes, exactly. Once again, where can people who are currently parted uh, by these travel bans find the love is not tourism efforts, the campaign, give, give the Facebook address again and, and anything else that uh, folks in your shoes uh, can access for, for help and, and insight. So a basic Google search for love is not tourism will find you um, a lot of resources and articles about what's going on, you can look us up on Facebook at Love Is Not Tourism. Uh, there is another Facebook for couples separated by travel ban, and through the Twitter hashtag Love Is Not Tourism. Thank you, Chelsea, so much for for jumping on the phone and sharing this with us. And I hope that you're reunited with your loved one in Europe very soon, as I hope I am reunited with my loved one in Europe very soon too. Thank you so much. Hi, Dan. I've been an on and off, mostly on listener for maybe 10 to 12 years now, and you've basically taught me how to have a stable, semi-open LTR, which has helped me to get married to the man of my dreams. Uh, we just bought a new house and are working on a surrogacy, and now our lives are going great, except for one thing. Since we got married, the sex has become less and less frequent. I know we are both into each other because the chemistry is still there, the flirting, the cuddling, but the instance of actual penetration are few and far between, especially now that we don't have any, quote, guest stars in the bedroom because of COVID. And I'm worried things are only going to get worse once we have kids. I think the main issue is timing. I fall asleep quickly at night, and he's almost impossible to wake up in a good mood in the morning. Neither of us likes to be woken up to have sex in the middle of the night, so basically that leaves during the day. We'll usually do some minor cuddling on the rare occasion we both are in bed together in the afternoon, but usually one of us falls asleep fairly quickly. I think part of the issue is both of us seem to be fairly attached to internet porn, and while I know you don't consider it technically to be an addiction, it has certainly carved some deep grooves in both of our reptile brains that seem very hard to extricate us from. 
So the sexual needs just uh, doesn't feel so urgent since we both have regular relief from porn. I would say let's do porn together, watching it, but we're both very shy about exploring porn with each other, and I don't really know how to go about putting it all together. The final thing is, even when all the stars align and we're both horny at the same time, I seem to be not ready for anal sex physically. I've tried a variety of different dieting tricks and supplements, but nothing seems to work for me to be completely ready for those unpredictable moments when we're both ready to go. Help us, Dan. I need to get fucked again, and my husband wants to come in my ass, but we're both too shy. You prioritize, you schedule, and you prepare. You're married now, sex is less frequent, wait, and you're exploring surrogacy. Wait till you have a kid. Then the sex is going to crater and tank unless you guys are in a very intentional way scheduling prioritizing and preparing for sex making sex dates and sex doesn't always have to be intercourse you can have great sex you can have blowjobs you can have mutual masturbation you can roll around if he's shy about watching his porn in front of you great have him put on some headphones watch porn on his phone and sit on your face and you can eat his ass while he has an orgasm and you can be a part of his porn thing without him having to be self-conscious about you watching the porn that he's watching as he's watching it and vice versa. He can do the same for you. You can find creative ways to work around whatever the block is. Like I feel self-conscious watching porn in front of you. Okay, well, I won't be able to see the porn if you're sitting on my face or really hear it very well if you're sitting on my face. Maybe that's how we can make porn viewing something that although it's Maybe that's how we can make porn viewing a part of our sex life while still sort of keeping it kind of semi-private. Get creative. And you're really going to need to get creative and really expand your definition of what satisfying sex is after you two are parents because it's going to eat up a lot of time, energy, and emotional space once you are parents together, once you start that never-ending relay race that is parenthood and yeah, sex will have to be scheduled and scheduled sex can be great sex. Swingers have scheduled sex that they look forward to and fuck a lot in advance of. Uh, kinky people have a lot of scheduled sex. You guys used to have very special guest stars pre-COVID. Those didn't happen without some planning in a way, a threesome, unless it's you know just a serendipitous thing that got started in a gay bar at a party a threesome is planned sex you found somebody you made a date with that person to get together the three of you well now you're gonna have to make dates to get together for sex just the two of you in the middle of the day neither of you likes being woken up in the middle of the night for sex he's not or you're not i don't remember which horny in the morning so mid-afternoon is the time so douche after lunch when you have a dictate with your husband at three or get together with your husband at three just for intimacy and rolling around without setting the bar so high that your performance anxiety about the condition your ass is or isn't in before you crawl into bed and crawl on top of your husband at the designated time. Hi, Dan. I am a queer cis woman in my early 30s calling from the West Coast. I have a long-term partner and years ago we decided to be non-monogamous a decision really rooted in the understanding that that we are each entitled to our own sexual autonomy and our own sexual experiences. We decided on a DADT style as the style that would make us most comfortable. And we've been doing that, or at least I have, I don't know about her. For the last year, actually, I've been 
kind of having a long distance relationship and I only see this person very infrequently and so it's been really manageable to text and call sometimes and just tell the little white lies I need to sneak around when they're in town um, again infrequently. Now they are moving to my area and I'm ecstatic but also nervous. I don't think my DADT will remain sustainable or even desirable if they're really here in person with me and I need to talk about it with my my partner. I want to assure her that she is my priority um, and I will say that explicitly, but it's hard because the DADT is you don't talk about it. So I don't know. We've never discussed having a poly situation before, really. But I think that's what I want. And I don't need her to know my details at all. But I don't feel comfortable not having her know anything about this other relationship that I'm in and having to lie to maintain it. Agreeing to a DADT arrangement, which is where a couple decides that one or both are allowed to have outside sexual encounters, but they're not going to ask and they're not going to tell. And in the not telling, you're sort of signing up for some deception, at least some lies of omission. So if you're in a DADT relationship and you're heading out and you're going to have some other sexual encounter and the whole point is not to tell your partner, not to burden them with those mental images or that knowledge – You either have to actively lie, I'm going here, when actually you're going there, or you have to lie by omission. You have to not tell your partner what you are up to to avoid actively having to lie to your partner. That said, you and your partner established a DADT agreement, and there's nothing about establishing early in a relationship or at some point in a relationship a DADT agreement that means you're never allowed to talk about your relationship and the way it is open or renegotiate how your relationship is open ever again. The don't ask, don't tell, don't talk about it is don't talk about those outside sexual encounters. Don't get specific. Don't burden me with that information. I know it's happening. But you can certainly talk to me about our DADT arrangement. You can certainly, hopefully, talk to your partner about your relationship. You can have a check-in about how the DADT thing has been working for you both. And you can put on the table during that conversation the possibility of renegotiating the terms of your open relationship. A lot of people with DADTs establish them because they don't want their partners catching feelings for someone else, getting tangled up with somebody else. The, you know, one of the knock-on benefits of don't tell for people who'd rather their partners only have one-offs is if you're seeing somebody regularly for sex, there's going to be likely a tell built into that somewhere because you're always at this person's house or with this person. And Your partner isn't an idiot and will connect the dots. Making sure there aren't dots to connect in a DADT arrangement usually precludes ongoing encounters with another person. So what you need to put on the table when you have this conversation, it's a difficult conversation with your partner and not a conversation that violates the DADT agreement is wanting to revisit that agreement. And the fact that you have, there's someone that you've seen regularly, but who is far away, who's going to be nearby and it's going to be harder to avoid tells. So you'd like to know from your partner how she would like you to handle that. And who knows, maybe your partner has been seeing somebody else regularly too and is dying to have this conversation and is afraid to have it with you. I think there's a small chance of that. Likelier, this will be 
an unpleasant conversation, but I imagine when you first had the conversation about DADT, it was unpleasant. Not because these conversations have to be unpleasant or should be unpleasant, but they often are. You know, they bring up a lot of people's insecurity issues. Uh, sometimes, you know, there were past wrongs and the agreement about how to structure the relationship around exclusivity going forward is in reaction to a violation or betrayal, the exposure of an affair or an emotional affair or knowing that you were getting online, flirting with people, usually often these conversations are in the wake of, you know, in most relationships, the wake of something unpleasant and that unpleasantness sort of taints the convo. But you can have these convos in a positive way. It is possible. It is necessary to have check-ins once you've established what the rules are, to revisit those rules and sometimes to renegotiate those rules and to seek clarity about them. And about where you stand in your relationship with your primary partner. So, have the convo. All that said, your piece on the side, this other woman that you've sometimes been meeting up with and having sex with and you have feelings for, caught feelings for, she's moving to your area. She's not moving into your guest room. She's not moving into the apartment below yours. It would be possible to continue to see her occasionally, once in a while even if she's in the same town. There is a step between a regular piece on the side and a DADT arrangement and a poly relationship where the partners all know each other and everything's above board and everybody's good with it. There are degrees here. You can make the DADT thing work even with somebody who's a regular and somebody who is in your area. If you really can't have this conversation with your partner again or your partner insisted when you did have the DADT conversation that this was something she never wanted to think about or discuss ever again, you can have a regular thing with someone in your area and still honor the DADT thing with your partner without having to revisit those negotiations. But I would hope you and your partner are good and solid enough and emotionally healthy enough that you could revisit that conversation, that you could reopen negotiations, if only to recommit to the DADT rule, if that's what your partner wants and your partner is important enough to you that you want whatever it is that she wants. But you don't know where the convo is going to go or what your partner might be comfortable with until you have that convo. All right, before we get to your response calls, let's read your tweets. Andy Colopy tweets, forget vulnerable. My Savage Lovecast drinking game is every time at fake Dan Savage says, cathartic with an extra C, cathartic. All right, first I'm in trouble for not pronouncing letters that are there, the first L, the silent L, invulnerable. And now I'm in trouble for pronouncing letters that aren't there, the non-silent but invisible first C in cathartic. Okay, okay, I can see the point. Cathartic is a word I've been mispronouncing. It's a word I learned by reading, and somehow I read arctic, like frozen tundra and polar bears, the first time I read that word to myself in my head, and it's been a problem ever since. I will try to get cathartic right from now on, but you're going to have to get used to, or better yet, adopt vulnerable with a silent L. I've given so much to the language, pegging, GGG, centaur, monogamish, I figure the language owes me this one. Iofi Spillane Hinks tweets, Primer, in the context you used it on the most recent episode of the Savage Lovecast, rhymes with Simmer, Dan. Oh, for fuck's sake. Okay, Primer, not Primer. I'm sorry. And finally, Emily Bird and Juliet and Cheating on Fear and Christine Clark 
everybody tweeted and emailed to let me know that the Center for Disease Control in British Columbia, not to be confused with the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta, the now compromised and corrupted Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta. Did you see their advice about sending your kids back to school next month? Did you know Barron Trump School isn't reopening in the fall? Anyway, the Centres, C-E-N-T-R-E-S, for disease control in British Columbia, has endorsed glory holes in a document titled COVID-19 and Sex, revised just last week. Health authorities in British Columbia endorse, of course, solo sex as the safest sex, followed by virtual online sex. But they have recommendations for people who want to meet up in person with people they want to fuck, that they aren't sheltering with. And on that list, along with not having sex if you're feeling sick, washing up before and after, and avoiding saliva exchange, they recommend that you use, and I quote, barriers like walls, e.g. glory holes, that allow for sexual contact but prevent close face-to-face contact. Yeah, I called that, didn't I? Way back in March, I predicted that we were entering the new golden age of glory holes. NYC Health recommended barriers like walls a few weeks ago leaving us to infer that they meant glory holes. But British Columbia, you guys get the prize for getting explicit and calling a glory hole a glory hole. All right, if you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now your response calls. Hey, Dan and the at-risk youth. This is an update. I called you back in January about the fact that I was seeing a woman who was still a virgin at the time at age 30, and your advice was to have sex with her, to have lots of sex with her, to enjoy myself. And I took your advice, and we're still going strong, Dan. We are going super strong in this pandemic time. We're not moved in or anything together, but this definitely has potential to be a long-term relationship. And I cannot thank you enough for the advice. We are discovering things that we mutually enjoy in and out of the bedroom. And more and more, I am convinced that I was even a fool to question it. So thank you again, Dan, for your advice. I really just cannot stress enough how you were right on this one. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in response to the caller whose husband had sex with someone without a condom. And um, I dated all through my 30s. I'm 40 now in the poly community in the Bay Area. And I dated partner people and solo poly people. And I can tell you that the vast majority of poly men will at least suggest and oftentimes push for condomless sex. And I know for a fact that it's almost never with the consent of their female partners. I've had many of those weird conversations and I had only actually one lover that never brought up condomless sex. Men with vasectomies are the worst. And I think that men have this like belief that they have a radar, like an STI radar, that they can tell you're a decent gal. I'm pretty sure that he's been doing this this whole entire marriage. I'm sorry. Divorce him. Hey, Dan. I'm just calling in response to your tweet on episode 717 with uh, spitting fetish. Actually, I have found that breathing has been extremely hot during the pandemic. I started dating somebody during the pandemic and sharing her breath has been so hot and so transgressive. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Or better yet, use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. 
This Friday, July 31st is really your last chance to watch Hump's Greatest Hits Volume 1. We extended the run for a couple of weeks and we have one more final showing of some of your favorite dirty movies and mine from 2005 to 2018. Go to humpfilmfest.com to get your tickets and while you're there, click on submit at humpfilmfest.com to find out how you can make and submit a film for next year's Hump Give the gift of the Savage Lovecast Magnum Edition twice as much show, more guests, no ads. You can give that to yourself or you can give that to the Savage Lovecast fan that you follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Learn more about the Love Is Not Tourism campaign at loveisnottourism.org and you can search for the hashtag Love Is Not Tourism on Twitter. And a big thank you to Whoopi Goldberg who tweeted in support of the Love Is Not Tourism campaign last week. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and Nancy and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. We'll all be back at you next week with an installment of The Savage Lovecast, another cathartic installment of The Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.